0: value investing expert Trey Henniger. Hello and welcome to episode 44 of the DIY investing podcast. My name is Trey Henniger, and I'm your host. In today's episode, I will be discussing the prospect of investing in banks, in particular purchasing bank stocks. We'll dive into the business model, some company examples, and general business quality. Before I get started, I want to make a short request. If you haven't already, please consider giving this podcast a rating and review in your podcast player. Simply hit pause and rate the podcast with both a review and preferably a five-star rating. I would really appreciate it. You can also do so after listening to the show. Your ratings and reviews help me to grow the podcast audience and help more people with the content that I produce. Also, if you haven't already, consider following me on Twitter at Trey Henniger. You can find a link to that in the show notes. And also, if you're a Twitter user, that's probably the best way to be kept up to date with new postings that I make. Outside of the podcast, like on my blog, of course, you're going to get any of the podcasts delivered directly to your podcast player if you subscribe. So please come subscribe and consider leaving me a rating and review. So let's dive into banks. As I mentioned last week when discussing credit card companies, I wanted to follow it up with banks, and that's because two of the four credit card companies we discussed, American Express and Discover Financial, are both actually banks but they also operate payment networks and it's important that you understand the business model of banks so that you can properly evaluate both the credit card companies that I discussed and the new banks which I'll be discussing today and what I want to do is first by explaining that there are multiple different types of banks now this is not an all exhaustive list Um, But I think it captures the main types that you're going to see. Now, this is United States centric. um, But while this is based on the fact that I live in the United States and have grown up in the United States and I know the United States, it's also based on other reasons. The United States has some of the more profitable banks in the world. Um, This is due to the way that we have um, the banks structured, but it's also due to some of the lending laws, some of the... Um, laws that we have in the United States allow banks to be more profitable. There's less competition per se between banks in the United States than some other countries, and we tend to have higher interest rates. And that can all play a factor in the profitability of banks. So although these are all United States banks, there is some reasoning behind that. And so it'll be something for you to think about if you're one of my listeners from outside the United States. So there's four different types of banks I want to discuss. First and foremost, my example today is Wells Fargo, and Wells Fargo is both a national and a global bank. This is a huge behemoth bank. It's worth billions and billions of dollars, um, and it operates on a very large scale. It operates across many different business lines, many different types of products, many different loans that you can get, many different ways to invest your deposits, um, And it's just a very big behemoth bank. This would compare very favorably to a company like a Deutsche Bank, um, to many major Swiss banks, major European banks, um, Australian banks. This is a huge conglomerate bank, Wells Fargo. So that's the first time, a giant large conglomerate The second type is what I'm going to call a regional bank, and this is a bank that, instead of competing with everyone in the world, focuses on just a smaller market. It chooses a small, usually geographically based market, Um, and and so it might focus on a single state in the United States, and that's what we have for you today is Frost Bank. First, Wells Fargo has the ticker WFC, and Frost Bank has the ticker CFR, so Frost Bank is a regional bank focused solely on the state of Texas. Um, Now, this was not, again, chosen by random. Texas was chosen in large part because it is one of the best economies in the United States, growing the fastest, has very favorable demographics, has very favorable job markets, and that is attracting immigrants into the state, both from in the United States and from abroad. And so you have a high population growth rate in Texas, a high GDP growth rate, and thus a high growth rate in deposits. So that's very favorable for the types of for a bank in terms of its future profitability returns and growth. So we have Wells Fargo and we have Frost Bank. The third type of bank is an online only bank. So here online only banks are basically open to large swaths of the population but they don't have individual bank branches and that can be very important because bank branches are one of the highest expenses that banks might have. They'll have to operate. It's basically part of their non-interest expense. It's not they're not paying interest on a deposit per se, but they have to pay expenses like paying the salaries of the employees, paying um for the real estate, paying real estate taxes, um paying rents, whatever it may be. Operating bank branches is expensive. It costs money to do so. That's why banks have them, are there to grow deposits. But if you don't have to have them to grow deposits, you could operate an online bank. And so my online bank example is Ally Bank. It's the bank that I use. It's the bank that I recommend. I highly enjoy using Ally Bank for my banking processes. I don't need... Uh, the ability to go to a bank in person in order to accomplish my financial goals, so I use an online bank. Um, I haven't looked at them in depth for financial investment reasons, but I've enjoyed them as a consumer. So again, I haven't looked too in-depth at Ally, but what it does offer by being an online bank is it gets to have lower expenses than maybe some banks that don't have online Oprah only operations, but they're going to have higher expenses in the form of marketing, running advertising, because it's not, you can't just drive by them and decide to stop in an open account. You have to be told about it either by someone else or you have to find them online. Well, finding you online typically involves advertising. So instead of an online bank, you can have a fourth type of bank, um, and you can be a niche bank. You can be something focused on a particular product. And this is, of course, Discover Financial, which we talked about in the last podcast with the ticker DFS, an ally bank at the ticker A-L-L-Y. So Discover Financial is, of course, a niche bank. They focus primarily on credit cards and credit card lending. And so here they have decided to specialize in a form of giving loans and They're not necessarily specialized in the form of receiving deposits. So Ally Bank is focused on getting deposits through the internet. Discover Financial is a bank focused on making use of their deposits through lending with credit cards. Um, So it's a niche style. It has a particular focus. And so instead of focusing on a geographic area like Frost Bank, it focuses on a specific type of loan profile with credit cards. So those are your four different types of banks. You have national and global banks like Wells Fargo, regional banks like Frost Bank, which focuses solely on Texas, online-only banks, Ally, and niche banks, Discover Financial. So I hope that gives you an idea that there's many different types of banks. Um, Again, there's even more than this. I'm sure there's certainly thousands of banks solely just within the United States. There's many, many banks in the United States. There's many thousands of banks around the world, Um, but it's to give you an idea that banking and investing in bank stocks is a huge endeavor. There's many different stocks available to choose from. You're not limited to just the global behemoths like a Wells Fargo or a Deutsche Bank. You can pursue smaller banks like regional banks um, or any of these other different types of banks. So just to give you an idea of what's out there. So let's talk about the business model. The business model for banks is very interesting. So on the front end, it's very basic. The business model for banks involves taking in deposits and then making loans on those deposits. So a bank might bring in $1,000, you deposit your $1,000 in the bank to keep for safekeeping and hopefully to earn some interest. But in order to pay you that interest, the bank has to take your $1,000 and loan it out to other people. And they have to then make loans with your money so that they can earn a return on that money and then pay you a deposit or pay you interest on that deposit. That's the basic structure for banks is they're taking in deposits and making loans. What this means is that Banks, in general, are a very highly leveraged business model because their sole form of earning revenue, or not the sole form, but the primary form of earning revenue is to earn a difference in return on the money that they take in, they have to be able to earn a high return on the loans that they give and while at the same time convince you to keep your deposits at the bank. This means that they're going to have to do leverage in order to earn a return. You know, if they were able to earn 30% on their loans, you're going to demand more than a 1% or 2% interest rates because you're going to know that, hey, you know, inflation's high per se or something, and so I'm going to ask for a high return on my deposits. You'd be asking for 10 20 25% returns on your deposits. Instead, if you look at it today, you know, in, mortgage interest rates in the United States are around 4% right now for a 30-year loan. So if the bank is lending out your money at 4%, then they need to be able to earn a profit on the difference between 4% and whatever they pay you. But it's compounded by the fact that they also have to, to take into account that some people aren't gonna pay those loans. So their costs are made up of any physical overhead costs like owning real estate, owning bank branches, Plus the cost of paying you an interest rate of let's say currently it's like 1%, 2%. So they're paying you 2% in interest. Maybe they're covering 1% in uh, or half a percent in real estate costs. And maybe there's another 1% in terms of potential losses. So they're projecting, hey, maybe 1% of our mortgages aren't paid back to us. So in other words, that's money that they lose on their loans, Well, that's a risk for the business because now what we've said is they have 4% coming in from their loans. They have 2% going out the door to pay you your interest rate. They have half a percent paying out. That's half a um, percent for their overhead and another percent for loan losses, and you're at a total cost of 3.5%. So what that means is that the margin for the bank is only half a percent return on their assets if they're just lending out their deposits. Well, that's a terrible return um, for a business. And so, what you see happen is that banks leverage up the lending. So, if the bank brings in, let's say, a million dollars in deposits, it wouldn't be uncommon for them to try and make loans that are, say, you know, $10 million. And they're going to leverage that about 10x whatever their equity is. And so, here I'm blurring the line between equity and deposits, but basically, Because deposits are really a liability for the business, for um, a bank. So when they take in deposits, that's money that they owe and it's not actual equity. Uh, But when you think about how much money the bank actually has, they're gonna try and loan out about 90% of their um, deposits so that they leverage up 10 times. So they're gonna keep it equity, which is gonna be 10% of their total book. Now, I know that's a little confusing, but just try and think of that term as kind of like a 10 times leverage. And so what it means, if you break it down into a very simplistic format, let's go back to what we said. They're making 4% on their loans, but they're having to pay a cost of 3.5%. So they're only earning a half percent return on their loan book. But if you leverage up their business 10 times, then that means that they're able to take that half percent return and turn it into a 5% return. So they've now taken a half percent return on assets and turned it into a 5% return on equity. So although a half percent return is terrible, a 5% return on equity is only just bad. So instead, we need to think about it more in terms of what are um, more reasonable numbers that you might see in a bank. And it would not be uncommon to see something on the lines of return on equ- return on assets in a bank of, let's say, 0.8% up to maybe a little over 2%. And so if you take that 0.8% return on assets and you multiply it by your 10 times leverage, you're looking at an 8% return on equity. Meanwhile, if you're able to take a 2% return on assets and multiply it by your 10 10 times leverage, you're now up to a 20% return on equity. Now, 20%, you're really starting to talk about making good money, and this is where it's important to understand that not all banks are created equal. You're looking for high quality banks. You're looking for banks that earn a high return on equity Now, that's driven by two factors. That's driven by their leverage, which is absolutely key. They're still operating with somewhere in that 9 to 10 times leverage point. And number two, a high return on assets. And that high return on assets is hard to do because basically there's two ways for a bank to make money. They have to bring in deposits at a low cost, and they need to make loans at a high return rate. And those are really the two levers that they have, because they're all going to operate at similar leverage amounts. um, But they're going to try and bring in low cost deposits to keep their costs low. And they're going to try and make loans at a high return. Now that making loans at a high return, I'm kind of including um, a caveat for losses that are taken out of that. So they're trying to make profitable loans not just lending money to even people that won't pay them back but they need to make profitable loans they need to bring in low cost deposits so you're looking for those companies that successfully do that and can do that over a long period of time and that's how you move from the 8 to 10 percent return on equity range up to something like a 20 percent return on equity range and that's where you want to be anything over 15 percent is going to be really good um So really, you want to be looking for banks that are earning over a 15% return on equity if you can. So in terms of numbers, let's talk about that. So again, you know, really anything over 10% is going to be decent because 10% is kind of that return you're trying to achieve. So if you have a 10% return on equity, that means you can buy the stock at book value and return um, your discount rate of 10%. And if you're earning a return on equity above 10%, then you can buy above book value and still reach your required rate of return. So we had four bank examples. Let's talk about them. Wells Fargo, our national and global bank, has a return on equity of about 13%. Now, I'm just pulling these um, from just basically stock quotes, so you're going to have to check the numbers yourself. Um, But they're they're a good baseline here to talk about. Frost Bank... Um, Our regional bank has a return on equity of about 13%, so very similar to Wells Fargo. The online bank Ally has a return on equity of about 12%, so not not as good as Frost Bank and Wells Fargo. Um, And that's probably because Wells Fargo and Frost Bank both get very low-cost deposits brought in. And finally, we have Discover Financial, which is our credit card niche bank, and that has a return on equity of about 26%. So this is almost twice as high as both Wells Fargo and Frost Bank. And that's driven largely by the fact that they're able to make loans at very high cost and very high return, because they are making credit card loans. So that's just to give an idea with the four examples we talked about. Obviously, do your own research about these companies before you would consider investing in them. Um, Some of them I've only done very cursory research over. So again, this is a very leveraged business model Um, because the only way you're achieving returns on equity above 10% is if you have that 10x leverage. No one's getting a return on assets as a bank, Over 10%. It's incredibly difficult to get that return on assets over 1.5%, let alone 2%. So, without high leverage, banks would not be profitable. They would not be a good business to have. But it also means that while that leverage is your friend and that leverage is helping you achieve your required rate of return... The leverage is also your enemy. Leverage is the ability, gives you the ability to fail. And as a business, generally when you've heard me discussing on this podcast, I'm talking about the dangers of leverage. I'm talking about how leverage hurts you, how leverage can cause you to get bankrupt, how leverage adds risk, and all of those things are true with bank stocks as well. That's why a lot of times you'll see companies split between analysis of financial and non-financial stocks is because financial stocks, and this is a broad term that covers banks and other types of companies, but financial stocks operate at much higher levels of leverage than the rest of the economy. And they're able to do that because of the laws and the benefits given to banks and, um, around their business model, the ability to let, to leverage up and lend out deposits that they don't exactly have on the balance sheet um, because they're managing liquidity, and it's a very liquidity management business. But it means that they're at risk to, to go bankrupt very ra- randomly. If a bank, even a good bank, that's been operating for a long period of time making good loans, suddenly gets into bad trouble they can very very quickly go bankrupt and this is what you saw in the 2009 financial crisis you had banks going bankrupt you had basis banks having liquidity crisis needing large infusions of cash in order to avoid bankruptcy and this was because they were operating at very high leverage and they made bad loans and um had too many bad loans combined with too much leverage that caused their liquidity to to become to a crisis, which means that they had much higher um, liabilities than they had assets, even if only temporary can cause the business model to fail for a bank. So by no means am I suggesting that banks are, Not prone to danger. In fact, they are probably the type of investment that's most risky that you'll invest in if you invest in banks. Um, because it does not take long for a bank to fail if they get into trouble. So the key thing, if you're going to invest in a bank, is avoiding the companies that are, are getting into trouble or that might even appear to be getting into trouble because what might be a red flag for another business should be a black flag, something that you will not c- touch if you see similar red flags in a bank management. But let's discuss quality. We've talked about some of the risks, but let's discuss quality. So the quality of a bank is driven by two factors. First and foremost, deposit retention. Deposits are the source of all of a bank's money, equity, growth, profitability. And so retaining their deposits is of the utmost importance. The banks that are able to retain the most deposits and grow those deposits over time are going to be the most successful and the best investments because they're able to um, keep their customers from leaving and maintain that stickiness of relationship. And in large parts, banks are very successful at doing this. Most banks have incredibly high deposit retention, and this is driven by customer behavior. Most customers do not want to change their bank on a regular basis. You're not gonna see a customer choose one bank one year and another bank the next and another bank the next. But you might see a customer do that with a food product that they enjoy. They might choose one um, flavor of ice cream and go to a different brand of ice cream and go to a different brand of ice cream. They may try different things over time, but you're not going to see that as often with banks. Customers do not like changing from one bank to another, which means that typically when a bank is able to convince a customer to open up an account and deposit money, they're unlikely to make that change for many years, probably decades and so deposit retention is very good for banks and it's a high driver for their high qual for them being a high quality business. But coinciding with deposit retention is the cost of those deposits. While it's absolutely important for a bank to retain its deposits It matters at what cost they do so. So banks can retain their deposits with many ways. They can do it by having a good customer relationship. They can do it with good customer service. They can do it by offering nice um, add-on investments. They can do it by offering high interest rates. Um, Any of the above could occur and cause them to have a high deposit retention rate. But the most important from the bank's point of view is to keep the cost of those deposits in terms of interest rates as low as possible. And this means that on as much of their deposit base as possible, they want to avoid paying any interest at all. This might be checking accounts that don't pay interest. This might be um, other types of accounts, maybe corporate accounts that don't pay interest something along of if you can get deposits into your bank that you don't have to pay interest on, this is going to be very beneficial to the profitability of your bank. Secondly, on the ones that you do pay interest on, you want to pay a low interest rate, and that's a low interest rate relative to the rate that you can earn on loans. So interest rates fluctuate. They go up, they go down year by year. It's really hard to predict where interest rates will be. The main thing is you want to make sure that as a bank, your interest rates are that you're paying out are much, much lower than the interest rates that you can earn on your loans. So that means that the highest quality banks are going to be those that can retain deposits for a long period of time and do so with the low cost of deposits and That is the primary reason that Wells Fargo and Frost Bank are on this list. They both have an incredibly low cost of deposits in addition to a high deposit retention rate which is why i believe them to be relatively high quality companies ally was on this list primarily because it's an online bank but if my experience is any guide i've been at them for a few years now Um, their customer service is impeccable and mainly all the features that they offer in their online bank have been very helpful to me. And so I think that it's likely that they have a high deposit retention rate, but unfortunately they have a very high cost of deposits. They pay interest on their checking accounts and they pay interest on their savings accounts. And the interest that they pay on their savings account pretty closely mirrors the federal reserve rate that's paid to banks by the United States federal reserve. And that's basically their marketing expense. They, sell themselves as an online bank of being able to offer very high rates of interest and that causes them to get deposits, but it also means that they're paying a high cost for those deposits. But of course, the high cost they pay for the deposits is part of why I like them as a customer. So there's obviously going to be trade-offs here and there. So we've talked a little bit about the high switching costs. Um, It's kind of a pain for people to change from one bank to another not only do they not like to but they don't like to for good reason um a lot of times you have to get things signed you have to go in person to a bank you have to convince them that you are who you are for them to let you have your money and transfer it somewhere else um you might need to get medallion signature guarantees. These are basically very fancy notarized signatures in order to transfer your bank account money from one company to another. Um, you need to do the research to determine which bank you're going to go to now. Um, and usually there has to be a good reason for it. Um, this takes a lot of time, worry, and effort. It's going to not usually something you're going to start and finish in one day. This is going to be a week or multi-week process, um, which causes people to retain their deposits at a single bank for a long period. A key driver of the quality of banking as a business is also that it's an infinite durability business. There's always going to be a need for banking services in our economy. Now that need might grow or shrink over time, but the key factor of having a safe place to store your money is a service that's always gonna be valuable for consumers And the key factor of having someone to offer loans to the to the economy is a key service for the economy. So having a company offer mortgages, having a company offer credit card loans, having a company offer um, student loans or um, car loans or any of these things allow the company to allow the economy to run at a high rate, certainly a high. Certainly, the economy runs at a higher rate because of the existence of credit than it would if the credit did not exist. And so the need for banking will continue in the future. Now, the risk, of course, is that the bank that you invest in won't continue, and that's always possible or it might shrink. But the need for banking as a whole across the economy is an infinite durability business, uh, which means that banks in general can be high-quality but they have threats. And so we're going to end on threats because I think threats are always um, something that you need to consider in your business. And if you don't think of them last, then you're not think. you should probably think of threats both first and last. When you make an investment, you need to make sure you're not making mistakes always. And the first and the biggest threat, at least in the United States um, and maybe elsewhere in in the rest of the world is there's a high number of competitors um, in banking and that that's kind of what i said before i'm sure there i believe there are thousands of banks currently operating in the united states alone every little town is going to have its own bank um you're going to have banks in towns banks in counties you're going to have state banks you're going to have Um, multi-state banks you're going to have national banks and you're going to have banks operating from overseas that are trying to compete with you and there's online banks and now there's new um, payment service companies that are trying to become a bank you have different banks you know you have companies like alibaba companies like apple which hasn't yet decided to be a bank but i wouldn't be surprised if it tries in the future um Everyone's trying to be a bank and there's a high number of competitors. And when you have high competition in a business, it's usually bad for profitability. Second big threat, and this is a threat that's particularly of interest today in 2019, Um, but I think is going to continue to be true in the future when you have similar conditions. We currently have very low interest rates in the world. In much of Europe, you have negative interest rates on government bonds, and negative interest rates and very low interest rates are very, very, very bad for the profitability of banks. Um, The European banking system is in a massive crisis right now. Um, It's not very publicly recognized, but the European banking system is in a massive crisis because there's so much negative interest rates. You have banks taking on government debt, which is guaranteed to lose them money over 10 years or 30 years because they have no other option. Um, which means these banks are setting themselves up for liquidity crisis in the future. And this is going to be potentially a slow unfolding disaster, but also potentially a very quickly unfolding disaster at some point in the future Um, as a liquidity crisis continues to build in Europe um, and potentially in the United States, which has slightly higher interest rates, but it's still fairly low interest rates and low interest rates impact the ability for banks to make profitable loans so although they give the bank the opportunity to pay a low cost on its deposits really they need higher interest rates in order to be profitable um as an investment and as a company as a whole um Another message, and it ties into this high number of competitors, is they might compete on rates paid on deposits. This is what Ally Bank does. They have made it um, a public strategy to provide very high interest rates on their deposits. Now, this impacts their profitability on the front end, but it might give them the additional ability to have a high deposit growth rate and retention rate. So it's something to consider. Um, especially with the advent of online banks, you're going to see more and more competition on the rates paid on deposits. This is a biggest, the biggest factor for non-online-only banks, and this would be um, like your Frost Bank type thing, where it's a regional bank or community bank. They're not used to having to pay high deposits, but they might be losing depositors to institutions that are offering higher rates. And my three final threats all go together, so I'm going to just name them off. Liquidity crisis, making bad loans, and too much leverage. And the reason I'm naming them together is because this is basically the advent of the 2009 financial crisis. These were the ingredients involved. You had a lot of companies making bad loans operating with too much leverage. And this led to a liquidity crisis where they were unable to meet their liabilities during a short time frame because those loans were coming due at the same time, they were not being paid back and the leverage caused them to fail. And this is going to be your basic um, ingredients for any bank failure is you're going to have bad loans um, that cause them to have liabilities that they cannot meet because they have high leverage, which leads to liquidity crisis. So, you need to be aware of that and you need to be looking on the out for banks that might have these concerns. If you see a bank making bad loans or you see a bank reaching for yield on its returns, this is not a good sign. If the bank that you're considering investing in or the bank of stock that you own has more leverage than advisable, that's a bad sign. Um, and if there's ever even a hint that the bank that you own has is having about to have a liquidity crisis you should probably get out because that's the number one way that banks enter into bankruptcy but you obviously need to do your own research it's why banks can be dangerous but as i already covered banks can be a very high quality business if operated properly especially if they're able to return on equi- receiver turn on equity greater than 10 15 or 20% In summary, investing in banks, I believe, is an attractive proposition. Um, However, banks also come with major risks. Even the most average bank operates at a very high rate of leverage, and leverage can be both a curse and a blessing. Unfortunately, you will have to do your own research on each individual bank to determine how their leverage is being used. Thank you for listening to this podcast. The full show notes for this episode, including my outline for today's podcast, are available at diyinvesting.org episode 44. Again, This is a listener-supported podcast. If you've gained value from today's content, please consider supporting the show financially as a patron. You can become a patron at diyinvesting.org slash P-A-T-R-O-N. Your financial support is what allows me to continue creating this free investment content without any advertisements. If you cannot support this show financially as a patron, please consider just giving me a rating and review when sharing this podcast with your friends. Your marketing to your peers and your friends is what allows me to grow the podcast and your ratings and review allow me to grow the podcast to those you don't know directly. So please consider doing that. I would really appreciate it. And trust me at this point in time, helping me with that rating interview is the number one thing you can do to help me with this podcast. Thank you for listening. And until next time, stop paying fees, start building wealth. DIY Investing, its producers, sponsors, and host, Trey Hinegar, shall not be liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based upon information or viewpoints presented on the DIY Investing Podcast. This Valentine's Day, Dunkin's got the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a cocoa mocha signature latte. Or make them swoon with a strawberry dragon fruit Dunkin' refresher with a Cupid's Choice Donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Duncan. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer.